hello everyone and welcome back to another legal diaries podcast and happy 2021 which sounds really strange to say because myself and my guest today are recording this um in the end of 2020 so we're just counting the end of the days um but today i'm joined by dr michelle killian um and we're going to talk about the super important topic all about mindfulness um, and stress management and burnout and just really reflecting um, on 2020. So I might just hand over to Michelle to introduce herself. Okay, thank you, Danielle. And yes, as you correctly said, my name is Michelle Killian and I work in the area of wellness. Um, I'm a researcher and currently I'm looking um, at uh, research on the impact of uh, disruption around COVID, COVID and how it's impacting on people's well-being. Um, so that will be ongoing into um, next year. Um, I've looked at numerous other areas um, in relation to well-being. Um, I have a background in research, as I mentioned, and also um, I'm a yoga teacher and I teach mindfulness. Um, so over the past couple of years, I've been doing quite a lot of workshops with uh, companies in this area, um, which has been very well received. But I, I think that you know the general public are now beginning to understand just the impact that lifestyle can have on their well-being. Yeah, no, definitely. It's like, it's a big, I felt like in 2020, there was a big kind of self-care movement. Mm. Um, and it's a thing. It's like one of those buzzwords of 2020 was like self-care and mindfulness. And um, so maybe if we just kind of take kind of a broad overview um, and reflect maybe on 2020 and maybe what you've seen through your research so far. So the impacts of the social iso social isolate isolation um, and COVID-19? Um, well, I think that there's been um, very diverse effects from this. It hasn't impacted everyone in the same way, apparently. Um, so for some people, it appears to be a good thing, or certainly they've been able to take some good out of it. Um, certainly, I would um, point towards the increased awareness around mental health and well-being is, is a positive thing for sure. Um, but I think that for a lot of people, they are struggling and certainly in terms of the social isolation, which is a key area. Um, so, yes, so I think that people are dealing with this in very different ways and some people have managed to make it work for them. Um, but I think that overall, there's, it has had a hugely negative impact on most people one way or another. Um, and certainly going into 2021, I think we're going to see even more of that as the economic effects of this are, are begun to, or people begin to feel that a little more. Yeah, because it's, it's so individual because everyone has their own kind of circumstances surrounding um, everything that kind of happened with COVID-19, like no one story um, of how people were affected as far as I've come across, has been the same. Um, but you wrote this really good piece um, for the King's Inns Fitness Challenge, and you focused in on social connection. Um, and it's not a thing that I ever really think about um, quite actively, but like, can you kind of explore that and say kind of why social connection is so important for humans? Yeah, well, social connection is really central to our to our being. Um, like if you just take a step back, um, you know, a couple of million years, you know, we did evolve out of the savannah. So, you know, very, very important at that time would have been to have a tribe or a connection with other 
other individuals of your own species because that helped to protect you from dangers in the environment. So again, you know, one person could take, you know, could be on watch while the rest of the tribe slept. Or if you wandered out into the savannah on your own, you probably were going to become lunch very quickly for some giant mammoth or a tiger. Um, so it, it benefits us from a survival perspective to have um, social connection. And of course, as we evolved and we developed this cognitive ability to be able to understand the minds of other people and to be able to understand that other people have different perspectives to us, this gave us an advantage because we can then begin to strategize and try to understand that you know, other people might want our resources and how to, I suppose, how to manipulate in relationships so that we can um, improve our survival chances. So that's kind of basically it. But it's very, very important for us to have social connection because not only for, um, you know, protective measures, but also because it seems to benefit us from an immunological point of view. Um, being around other people seems to provide some um, immune benefits. And um, like, even if you think about it, like if you go into a, a, a public bathroom and, you know, somebody hasn't flushed the toilet, we don't think about these things, but you'll actually avoid using that toilet. You'll go into another booth. And the reason is we're trying to avoid infection. And I think this is very relevant in the time of COVID because there is a certain degree of, I suppose, um, stigma around, you know, people don't want to say, oh, you know, I, I was infected or anything. And a lot of that is actually biologically driven. It's because infection is a threat to our survival so it's yeah. Really, yeah yeah so it's really important that we have this social cohesion and that we have you know other people around us to protect us from all these I suppose threats yeah that's so interesting though because I remember like back away in my undergrad I would have done um a module um it was a sociology module and it was talking all about like social connections and social capital mm. and it's a thing I never think of in my day-to-day -day, but then it's become so apparent during COVID because like people can't see people um, like, like unless they're in your bubble or it depends on where you are in the world and, and what your restrictions are like. So I think it's become more evident. So say if you were introvert before, I think you've been forced to become more introvert. And then if you're extrovert, like you're, you're, become, you're having to adapt to a lifestyle that you're really not used to. Yes, that's a very good point. And certainly there has been some work done in that area around um, different personality types. But even beyond that, I, I just think that it's so innate for all of us. So even if you are a loner, um, there's no doubt about it. The knowing that you are isolated, it can have an impact on you as well. Because a lot of about um, social isolation really is down to perception. So you can be very... Uh, you can be on your own, but not feel socially isolated. And conversely, you can be in a crowd and feel very socially isolated. So friends are really important to us. And I think I agree with you completely, Danielle, that prior to COVID-19, we probably took that for granted. And particularly younger people who would have, you know, interacted a lot through social media and through uh, online platforms. So a lot of their engagement and their social interactions were very superficial. And I think that they're beginning to appreciate the importance of real face-to-face -face contact now, which is really important. And in fact, I was only reading a piece of research recently, which looked at um, four different cities in, in China. And what they found was that they weren't very well able to explain it, but they, they set out looking to try and prove, you know, whether they were trying to, trying to prove if um, that... Uh, 
you know, online interactions would, you know, be just as good as a face-to-face. -face. And they actually found the opposite, that actually um, you could predict quality of life based upon face-to-face -face interactions with friends and family, but you couldn't predict it based upon your online interactions. That's so interesting, because that is so, even I see quite a difference, say, I've a, my brother is eight years younger than me, about eight and a half years, um, and he is very screen time heavy and he will communicate with all of his friends on through kind of gaming apps and stuff like that and other than like school or college or something they very rarely like will see each other interact with each other face to face but that's just normal whereas like when I was younger you like couldn't see your friends unless you went and knocked on their door um and we just didn't have that kind of being on a screen and having those online kind of say relationships or friendships with people um yeah that's super interesting I'd love to read that study actually I'd say I'd say it was very interesting yes yes and I, I think the you know the other point that you made there around um you know the way different generations and the way people interact and particularly with online um what's very interesting about online interactions is that they tend to be quite transactional so there's a lack of spontaneity like when you meet somebody in uh, in person you have to deal with all that complexity of real human interaction where you might say something that embarrasses the other person or embarrasses yourself and you have to kind of dig your way out of that hole but when you have online you can you can orchestrate everything you don't have to respond if you don't want to you can plan what you want to say and then you can delete it and rewrite it so a lot of it is much more contrived and that does away with that that challenge that a lot of us have to face with it, real face-to-face -face interactions but that's also part of being real and human and alive yeah because I always say I always joke to my brother I'm like you can't mute people in person <laughs> like <laughs> if you don't want to talk to someone or interact with someone on a kind of day-to-day -day basis like you don't have like you can't delete you can't block you can't mute you can't do all those things and those are like skills that you need to be able to kind of have everyday interactions with people Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, and maybe if we kind of shift gears a little bit and talk about, so we've kind of focused on why we're such social creatures um, and what social isolation and loneliness can be. What are some, how, how do you recommend for people to overcome it? Um, especially during times of COVID when maybe they possibly can't see a lot of people. Yes, and that's a very good question. Um, and I'm glad you asked it because I always like to focus on, you know, what we can do about things. I'm very pragmatic about a lot of this. You know, you can theorize forever, but you have to find, you know, try and provide some solutions. Well, I think the first thing that people need to um, do is realize their limitations. There's no doubt about it. It's not the same. And um, that's not to say that social interaction online um, that we shouldn't use it. And certainly it provides a substitute um, and it, it is important to use it insofar as we can to help buffer us against the effects of loneliness. So, you know, the kind of share the screen, you know, have a kind of a drink with the family, whatever it might be. Um, that said, I think that, you know, doing something for someone it's really interesting. If you volunteer for somebody and you actually do something for somebody, it actually helps you to feel less lonely. And there has been large scale studies done on this all over the UK on volunteering work and how this impacts on the people who actually volunteer. So it has a benefit both for the receiver and the person who volunteers. And what I would say is particularly during COVID-19, it's a great opportunity to do something like that. You know, offer to collect some groceries for your neighbor or, mm. you know, 
drop something over, you know, all that kind of stuff, help them with the garden, whatever it might be. And you can still keep your social distancing. Mm, yeah and I know our local cafe as well um, in our local villages they have a sign up on the door and they're looking for volunteers to volunteer on Christmas day and do you drop off of Christmas dinners to kind of some of the more isolated um, older persons in the community who may not cook for themselves but may not interact with other people um, and even if you look for things like that like there's so many opportunities at the moment to volunteer Absolutely. And I think that, you know, with the first lockdown, we saw a lot of that. We saw a lot of people really getting, you know, with a community spirit and getting out and engaging and, and you know, doing all that stuff. But now a lot of people have become more, you know, self-focused and kind of, you know, I think they've become worn out with the whole thing as well. So it is important to kind of remember that, that it also benefits you. But I think as well, you know, even setting up something like a local community buddy system can be really effective. So it's basically just, you know, allowing everybody to have this maybe a platform online i don't know how you might might organize it but i'm sure there's ways of organizing it within communities that you have a buddy system so people have or, or even in organizations you could do this where people just have a contact should they need somebody to talk to yeah yeah because that is because some people you don't realize especially in the workplace when you don't interact with people outside of the workplace you don't understand their reality outside so maybe that was their social outlet like coming into work and being able to socialize with their colleagues but they actually live quite an isolated life outside of work um but obviously this year um in particular has been huge for for stress levels for people and loneliness and social isolation but i find the christmas period in particular can be a very hard time for people yes yeah yes. um so have you got any kind of specific things of how to manage your health and well-being as we head into kind of 2021 and gear ourselves up for what is likely hopefully not um but likely going to be some other kind of more restrictions and another like lockdown again come January in Ireland. Yes, really, really important. Um, um, particularly if we do go into another lockdown, a lot of people don't realize, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, waiting for the vaccine and, you know, all of this, but a lot of people don't realize there's so much they can do themselves. A lot of, and a lot of it is about lifestyle. Um, one thing that I'm a little disappointed about not hearing in the public domain is more focus on improving people's immune system. And this is something which can, you know, not only help you to deal with the stress around COVID, but also should you become infected, it will really increase your chances of, you know, having a positive outcome. And to improve your, your um, immunity, very simple things you can do. Um, I can't emphasize enough sleep. Um, and, you know, sometimes people, it's so simple, um, but it is really important. And there are very, very good reasons why it is important just because um, when you sleep, your body goes through cycles. And when it goes through these cycles, it um, goes through cellular repair. Now, if you imagine, you know, you have a car and you have a very nice car outside. If you never bring it for a service year after year after year, you can't really expect, you know, the wheels not to fall off after about 10 years. Yet, you know, we live our lives without really giving ourselves a chance to sleep enough and rest enough. You know, we focus so much on work, work, work and, you know, keeping going, you know, keeping up with everything that we forget the importance of sleep. It's not just, you know, you close your eyes and you kind of, you know, get some shut eye because you're tired. There's a really important function for sleep. 
and that is to um, consolidate memory, to um, repair, cellular repair, um, to um, regenerate nerve cells in the brain. There's just so much going on when you sleep. Mm. So that would, be the, that would be the first thing. The second thing I would say is everybody, particularly in Northern hemispheres, um, should take vitamin D supplements. And um, a, a researcher um, in Dublin actually with the TILDA study, it's, a, it's a, a longitudinal study being conducted in Ireland around the um, life course of people living in Ireland, growing up in Ireland. And he's done quite a lot of research around this area on vitamin D, but it has been go ongoing around the world. But vitamin D is, you know, a lot of people think it's a vitamin just like other vitamins, but it's actually a lot more than that. It's an, it's an immune regulator. And um, it's very important in Northern hemispheres to take a supplement in the winter the reason being is because we don't get enough sunlight, which brings me to the other point, particularly if we're into a lockdown again in January, when we have the shortest days, it's very important that people get outside. And mm. um, again, yeah, because what this does is it helps to regulate your hormones. And um, so early morning, it's really, really good to get out early morning because the wavelength in the daylight at that time of day is really, really good for setting your biological clocks. Inside your, yes, yes, inside your body, people usually think about just sleep as being the biological clock, but every cell in your body has a biological clock and every gene has a timing sequence to turn on and turn off. So digestion, your liver, your heart, all of the different functions in your body are, are, are basically tied into the clock, tied into the, the, the light cycle. And every morning you get up, that, that clock is reset by the daylight. So your, 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 um, your, your brain picks up the information through, through the wavelengths, just to put it simply. And it, it basically tells your brain what time of day it is to reset all those clocks in your body. So if you're staying up late and you're under artificial light and you're looking at a screen until very late at night, your body clocks get confused. So you end up hungry late at night, you get the munchies, then you end up gaining weight. So it has so many knock-on effects. So daylight is really important during the day and then turning down the lights at night. So you really oh. need to be, yeah, we really need to be mimicking that kind of savanna environment insofar as we can, um, natural daylight cycles. Yeah, that's so interesting because it wasn't till, like it's as I've gotten older that I've started to appreciate sleep more, but also it wasn't until this year until I actually properly started to read kind of articles and books on sleep and how important it is and how to kind of certain things that you should be doing and um and it's been on my list for so long to get vitamin d because i know that's another thing that i'm like probably severely lacking like every other um irish person but it's so interesting about the morning thing though because i've even shifted kind of my because i'm working from home predominantly at the moment you have i have the flexibility to kind of move my work hours around so i've shifted them forward um so I start earlier, but the main premise is that, so hopefully I can then get out into the daylight because it's so sad when you start work and it's dark and then you finish work and it's dark and you just don't get that kind of in-between sunlight to adjust your body. Um, 
Yes, actually, and I'm actually interested in um, part as part of the research that I'm going to be doing in the following year, I'm going to be looking at that. Um, it's what we call um, chronotypes. So people have a preference either as what we call morning larks or um, night owls. So some people, there's a genetic predisposition to, you know, either having a body clock which likes to get up early and go to bed early or a body clock which likes to stay up late and get up late. And one of the things that I, I, I'm kind of interested in, in exploring throughout this process of COVID is whether people adjust their own body clock because they have the flexibility. Yeah. And, and does it make, I mean, I suppose I could ask you the question, um, you know, does it make you feel better to, to live in synchronicity with your own body clock? Yeah, like I'm, I've always been, as I've gotten older, much more of a morning person. Um, but I found as I've adjusted back, I'm a lot more productive in the mornings. And by about 8pm at night, my brain just kind of shuts off. And it's like, even I, when I was started studying and I was training for the bar, like I couldn't, after a certain point, I just couldn't study anymore. Whereas like, I would get up and do work out in the morning and do all that before work. And I'd happily get up at like 6am in the morning and then go to bed by like 9pm that night. But it's funny because my boyfriend and I were just chatting about the other day, like he cannot do mornings and never has been able, but he will stay up late to get a workout in and do all that kind of stuff. But he'll then force himself to get up early for work the next day. But if it was a weekend, he'd sleep in. Um, but yeah, but I find I'm much more content in myself if I just stay with the even at the weekend like I've gotten out of the habit of being like oh it's the weekend I can have a sleep in whereas I'm like oh maybe I'll have an hour more and get up at like 8am or 9am and it's still a sleep in but it's not like knocking me off kilter completely and resetting my body clock for the week after if that makes sense. Oh totally and you know um, it's what we call as the social jet lag so it's when people um, have a, particularly your, in your boyfriend's case, you know, people who tend to be night owls and tend to be, you know, feel better being more productive later in the, in the day. Um, what we find, or certainly the research has found, um, and there have been studies done on shift workers and particularly um, longitudinal studies in the UK and the, the United States over about 20 or 30 years, tracking people who do um, shifts. And what they found was that people who tend to be night owls have much higher rates of risk for things like cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, etc. And the reason being is because, like I mentioned earlier, it's not just your it's not just your sleep clock that gets disrupted. It's also your liver clock and your insulin and all of these other processes. And um, particularly for someone like your boyfriend who's going to bed late, what, what they find is they, people like that will force themselves to get up early because that's what our society demands. Whereas people who are morning owl, or sorry, morning larks, they tend to suffer less from these, these or have a, a lower risk of these disorders. And the reason being is you can always go to bed earlier. Um, whereas, you know, people who go to bed later still have to get up early. So they miss out on, on essential sleep. It's also to do with the timing of sleep. It's really important to get to bed before midnight and preferably around um, 10 or 10.30 because it is between 10 and two o'clock that you do most of the repair work, most of the biological repair. Because oh. I'm always like, I, it's a thing where I'm like, I need to be asleep before midnight. I'm like, anything past it, I'm like, is insane. Um, but I usually fall asleep probably around 11 because I'm trying to do this whole like wind down routine now where 
I move tech away from me. I, and I love reading. So that's what I, that's how I kind of focus my brain into sleep mode. I know when I pick up a book and start to read at night, um, that is me kind of winding down for the day. Um, but that's so interesting. Um, and that kind of leads me on to the next kind of part of my question of ways to prevent and relieve stress. Um, so obviously sleep being one um, and a huge one at that. I'm so interested to see how that study goes next year. Yes, yes. And um, so sleep would be one thing. The, the next thing that you, you would be very important would be um, regularity of eating. So again, the timing of eating, if you want to adjust your body clock, you need to also adjust your eating clock. So if you want to go to bed earlier, you need to eat a little bit earlier and adjust your timing. And, but it's also the type of foods that we're eating. Very important, particularly during this time is to eat, you know, immune boosting foods, things like mushrooms, um, lots of greens, lots of veggies, alkalizing foods, and go a little bit easier on the, the meats and stuff and particularly red meat. Um, low consumption of red meat is, is very beneficial for us. Um, some people like to eat meat, so that's fine, but I would certainly say limited. Um, you know, lots of fish, um, omega-3 oils, very, very beneficial. And also they lower, um, they, they boost your immunity, but also they lower inflammation, um, which is often associated with stress. Um, the other thing would be um, yes, you know, stay away from things like too much sugar. And I know it is Christmas and everyone's going to be enjoying Christmas cake and indulgences and lots of wine and drink and all of that. But, you know, just remember, you know, moderation and um, there's no, you know, certainly enjoy yourself, but, um, you know, just bear in mind moderation and uh, your body will thank you for it in 2021. That's, um, that's all super interesting. Um, I'm, I, part of me is like, I really need to cut out on sugar. <laughs> I think, I think we all feel that way. <laughs> like, and I'm not even that bad, but at the same time, I'm like, I like, like say added sugar. I'm like, I definitely cut curbage out of my diet in some different ways, but I find it really interesting what you say about the diet overall, because I read um, the study last year of the sustainable diet. I think it was last year that the sustainable diet and they were talking about the best, most effective diet for you as a person, but also for the environment. And it was very much like what you're saying. It's like um, limit red meat, limit meat consumption, eat more fish um, and have kind of leafy greens and stuff like that and all that in your diet. So that's really interesting. Yes. And um, when, you know, when you talk about diet, I mean, one thing that I'm always very careful of doing is I, I never prescribe a diet um, to anyone. Um, I think even the word should be banned. You know, it, it's, it's a way of life. And, you know, the minute that people think about going on a diet or adopting a particular type of diet, and every year you're going to see the new kind of fad come in, you know, this is the way to eat or this isn't the way to eat. And it's all about do's and don'ts, you know, rather than, you know, eat everything you enjoy in moderation, but also it's really about focusing on the balance. And that's something I always try to emphasize with people. It's the balance that matters. There's nothing wrong with having some chocolate. There's nothing wrong with, you know, having some red wine or white wine or a beer or whatever it is you like. It's about, you know, overall balance. And if you're eating overall a really, you know, good, nutritious, and I always focus on nutrition as opposed to calories. Um, you know, it's, it's about, you know, eating very nutritious foods, 
one thing that you will find is that it is possible, believe it or not, to be overweight but undernourished. And a lot of people don't understand that. They, they, they think that if a person is overweight, they have to be getting all the nutrients. But you can still be overweight and be undernourished because you're eating a diet which is not rich in essential minerals and vitamins. Mm. And even our diets today overall are depleted of a lot of these things because the soil is depleted. So it's really important to eat organic when you can, if you can afford it. But of course, not everyone can, but certainly wash your fruit and veg and eat, you know, a good balance of, you know, stuff that comes from the ground, you know, um, and they've done um, numerous studies all over the world and they tried to find, you know, what was the best diet in the world? You know, what was the single best diet? And what they found was there was no single best diet, but what there was, was a common factor is to eat locally grown food. Yeah. Close to nature as possible. And, um, you know, and all these diets varied very differently in terms of their composition, but that was the one key factor. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because like I, I'm really big on sustainability. So one thing I'm trying to do is buy in season and locally source mm -hmm. as much as possible. So there's kind of like a win-win. So it's like a win for the environment and a win for you. Um, but yeah, that's, that's really interesting. We might just um, kind of sum this topic up then um, by one thing I find is there's healthy stress and then there's unhealthy stress. So like healthy stress to me is the adrenaline you get before you go into a big exam or a meeting or something like that and all that kind of stuff. Or, um, but like unhealthy stress is when you're like lacking sleep, you have lack of concentration and all those. So what are those kind of, how for someone listening, would you differentiate those two? Um, well, they can they're very closely related in fact and biologically you know in terms of the nervous system they're not that different um, and this is where it gets really interesting now it's quite complex but I, i'll try and simplify it as best i can um, a lot of it has to do with your perception so it's how you perceive something and you can do very interesting little thought experiments around this um, where you get people to visualize two different scenarios and try and imagine the type of emotions that they feel in relation to them. And you can demonstrate to them the difference between how their perception can change the emotion that they experience, whether it's excitement or fear. So for some people, and this also explains why some people can go on a roller coaster and feel absolutely thrilled and excited about the whole idea, whereas for other people, it's absolutely terrifying. So a lot of it has to do with your perception, but also it has to do with your overall load. It's what we call the um, allostatic load. So if you are undergoing quite a lot of stress in your life from a lot of different areas, so say, for example, you have a stressful job or maybe you're worried about losing your income or um, you're not able to you know, pay your mortgage or just even the uncertainty around COVID can be enough to um, increase people's stress. And then what happens is something happens, like maybe you know, a close relative dies or gets very ill, and that just basically tips you know, pushes you over the edge into distress. Um, and that's that negative stress that you experience. But what I would say is that for people, um, it's really important to learn how to breathe um, because breathing can actually calm the nervous system. And by learning how to breathe, particularly long exhalations, deep and slow, relaxed exhalations, very, very easy. It's what we call 7-Eleven breathing. And you'll find videos or, you know, online, YouTube, anywhere, and it'll demonstrate how to do this very easily. But 7-Eleven breathing is something I always teach to people who have any 
any type of anxiety or stress in their life. And you can experience the benefits of it straight away. So it's really, really powerful, but simple method for helping to reduce your stress. That's so interesting. I'm literally writing down 7-Eleven breathing as we speak. Because <laughs> I'm, but I'm notorious. Like I used to be kind of so good for it when I was really sporty when I was younger. Because I, I was able to kind of like, but I was I went like about it. If, uh, like a year ago when everything was was much more normal than it is now I was um I had a personal trainer in the gym together and I was like lifting weights or is doing something and she was just like you need to breathe like she was just like you don't need to hold your breath when you do the exercise and it's a thing that I've noticed kind of every day when I get into kind of say stressful situations sometimes I can not stop breathing but not like not regulating my, I don't know how to explain it. Like I kind of just pause and then I realize, oh, I'm not even breathing properly at the minute. Yes. And that goes back to our very first point when we started this talk, which is, you know, it's biological. I mean, if you think about it, if you were out in the savannah and there was a rustle in the bush, what would happen is you'd hold your breath because you don't want to be detected. You wouldn't want to move. You wouldn't want to make any noise. So that's a very natural response to a potential threat is to hold your breath. And that's why it's very important when people are stressed to get them to actually breathe, even though it seems counterintuitive to them. Um, so yeah, the breath is really, really important. And like what you said, like if, if I was to just instruct people, you know, here just to breathe really shallow and quickly, very quickly, they would be. They, you can induce a state of panic in somebody because just by doing that physically, your nervous system is told to, you know, pump blood faster, increase blood pressure, um, you know, reduce kind of um, digestion. All of these things happen for for very very good reasons. So the stress response isn't your body turning in on itself or doing something like strange. It's actually. A way of protecting you and that's something really important for people to remember it's a very natural response to an unnatural situation oh very interesting because i found because i grew up with asthma and like i still have it but like whenever i was ever to have an asthma attack when i was younger the last time i had an asthma attack the first thing people tell you is they're like okay slow your breathing but that's the last thing you can possibly concentrate on you start to try breathe really quickly mm -hmm. um but it's so but it is so true because even i find if i'm struggling to get asleep at night and i have a lot kind of racking around in my brain if i slow my breathing and just relax my body my body eventually just kind of calms itself and then i fall asleep yeah, and actually through that process of breathing slowly, your nervous system actually signals the muscles to relax. So it's, it's, it's very physical. You know, people often talk about mind over matter, but that's actually, this is actually matter over mind um, and a way of overcoming that stress. Yeah. Oh, wow. So interesting. Um, we might just now um, switch it up and um, just I could literally talk about this all day because I've been like reading about it all year. <laughs> For today's episode, we're going to focus more in on um, occupational stress and workplace stress, which I know a lot of people have probably um, felt a lot this year because a lot of people were moving home and maybe having kind of family or home life and work life live basically side by side to each other. Um, so what can you, for anyone listening, can you kind of describe what occupational stress is? 
Okay, well, as, as a definition, um, occupational stress would be, you know, any form of, you know, ongoing or progressive stress, which would be experienced by somebody, you know, which is related to work. And it's, it's usually due to the, either the role responsibilities, the work conditions, it could be the environment, it, or it could be the people you're working with, or it could be a combination of any of these factors. That's so interesting because I always think about workplace stress, maybe for my own self personally, to do with like the job at hand, so the tasks that I'm doing, but I never think of it environmentally. Um, but oh, that's, yeah, because yeah, if you are, because in a workplace environment, I've seen from friends and even for myself, because I work in quite a good workplace environment, um, but it, it, it can have a huge impact on your, your day to day. Yes, even something as simple as, you know, whether you're seated near to a window or not, or whether there's enough sufficient lighting, or whether you have, you know, UV lighting, you know, the, 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 the kind of old fashioned. Yeah, they had all of these things can have a really negative impact on your on your health and well being. And they can also disrupt your sleep and other things as well. So they can have very, very, they're stressful. So your body, your body doesn't like those environments. We like natural environments. So offices that have lots of greenery or plants, um, you know, lots of natural daylight, um, good lighting, um, comfortable chairs, all of these things, we underestimate the importance of them for, for the workplace. Yeah. And there's so for, for often, say, if you think of chairs for workplace, it's quite a small expense, but when you think of it, it can go a long way for employees. Um, and when, like how, from seeing people or speaking with people um, through your profession who would have encountered occupational stress, how does it usually present for people? Um, well, it can present itself in a number of different ways. Um, sometimes people are not even aware of it themselves initially. Um, so it could present itself as um, irritability at work. Other, other people might notice it through changes in your behavior. Um, it could be tension. Very often there's muscular tension, heart palpitations. You know, I've had clients who would go off to the doctor thinking that they're, you know, they've got some kind of heart problems and the doctor would say, you know, would ask them about their job and stuff. And then they'd realize that actually it's, it's um, psychosomatic. Um, so it's, it's a very real experience, but it's actually brought on by stress. Um, things like sleep disturbances, um, gastrointestinal disturbances, um, gut problems are very common when you're under stress. The reason being is because um, your gut microbiota, so these are the bugs that live in your, in your digestive system, um, they actually signal the brain. They send a signal to your brain as to you know, how happy they are. And they actually produce serotonin, which is a hormone that helps to make you feel good about life. And if you're depressed or if you're, you know, in a stressful environment, those gut microbiota don't produce serotonin and they can leave you feeling quite dismal and depressed. Um, and then um, things like skin issues. So psoriasis would be very common um, in people because it is an inflammatory condition often brought on by stress or certainly exacerbated by stress. And, um, and fatigue, just general fatigue, and even workaholism. So a lot of people, what they do is to try and compensate for the, the lack of focus because they're stressed and they're overworked, tend to try to work harder and compensate. So that can also be a factor. Wow. It's so funny because up until this year as well, like I personally myself have a history with depression and I got really into kind of... Um, and I've always had really bad gut health um, and 
it was only this year that I started reading into serotonin and the if you say say because I would have low levels of it that that can have an impact on my gut health and basically the the mind gut connection um mm. and I've I just kind of this year went on kind of a learning um curve with it and it's so interesting because it's not a thing people think about um but it 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 definitely is something that that needs to be kind of looked at and explored a lot more um and do you think um just a question that kind of arose um while you were talking there do you think um because I find it quite difficult and I'd say a lot of people would find it to talk about say your stress or your mental health within the workplace so how do you go about addressing that or do you think mental health days just need to become the norm in society to give people that kind of breather um um, yes, um, I, I do think that there's still stigma around mental health and um, despite, you know, a lot of, you know, very big efforts to try and overcome it, um, it is still there, there's no doubt about it. And a lot of people do feel shy about talking about, it, particularly in the workplace, because they're afraid how it might impact and they're afraid how others might perceive them. Um, there's no doubt about it. The only way to overcome it is for more people to talk about it, um, certainly, and to bring it out in the open, because it is a lot more common than people realize. And I know you mentioned it earlier, Danielle, you were saying about you never know what's going on, you know, in someone's life. And the person who you think has it all together sometimes can be struggling. And, you know, it's, it's very natural. I, I think, I suppose, one of the things that I always try to put across, and certainly on forums like this, I think it's important to, you know, emphasize the fact that stress is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. Your body is perfectly designed to be healthy. And what it does is it's all the time trying to monitor the external environment and it's trying to maintain balance amidst change that's really what this is about and if the external environment is changing too rapidly or the changes are too dramatic or too chronic and you're in you're in an environment which is not facilitating your well-being you're going to feel stressed now you've two options you can ignore it and try and work through it until you burn out or you can address it and then try to do something about it and that in itself is not an easy task. Um, you know, there's no doubt about it. We are limited to what we can do because we don't have control over everything in our environment. But I think that increased awareness around stress and particularly in the workplace, because let's face it, a lot of people have it. Um, the modern workplace is not designed for, you know, healthy well-being. Let's, let's be honest. And unfortunately, the culture and particularly the kind of modern culture around you know individualism you know you're a master of your own destiny you know work hard um never complain you know never admit any weaknesses that's wrong we are human and we need to remember that that's so interesting because i'm so my own personal journey like i'm so open on my own kind of mediums but I still have it to be around myself in the workplace. And if I was ever to have, like, I don't ever want, like, in my head to impede upon my work just because how I think that people will perceive me. Um, so it's so true. And I think there is, like, I think we've come a long way um, with mental health in Ireland, but I still think there's huge stigma um, about it, particularly in the workplace. Um, 
one thing you kind of touched on there, which I um what I think would be good to talk about would be this kind of like hustle culture. So like we we're in a culture at the moment where it's kind of a badge of honor to be busy and it's kind of like we have to be kind of burning ourselves at both ends in order to be successful and we have to keep hustling at things and taking on things like what are your views on this kind of hustle culture and do you think it's it's hurting us as humans um, do you really want to know <laughs> um, yeah okay I'll be bluntly honest and I'll say people need to wake up and realize it's just a swindle and um and I I say that you know very seriously because it is a swindle um, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, who benefits um, the idea of, you know, this idea of, you know, owning, owning one's moment, you know, this is just a rebranding of surviving the rat race. And um, what I would say is, is that, you know, it really, the hustle culture really exploits the need for social approval, particularly amongst young people who are aspiring in their career. So a lot of it is about, you know, as you said, a, a social badge of honor. And that badge of honor is really, you know, a status symbol. It's a social status symbol. And I think, you know, it reminds me of the early days of, I suppose, the internet, you know, when you had Amazon reviews first came out. And there was this whole kind of, you know, altruistic movement of, you know, people, you know, sharing information online, you know, for no personal gain. Um, this idea of, you know, democratization of information um, and knowledge across the internet and cooperation. And, you know, that was all well and good initially. And then, you know, I, I did some research on this um, about two years ago, and it was around this whole idea of, you know, well, why do people share online? Why do they share stuff with strangers? Why do they, you know, you know do stuff for, for no personal gain? And what actually came out of it was that a lot of people do it because of the impression management. It's about, it's about being seen to be doing good or be how, how others see them. Yeah. And, yeah, that's yeah, so true. Like social media, I think has had a huge impact on it. So it's like it's cool to be busy, but not only is it cool to be busy, it's cool to also talk about and portray your busyness to everyone else in the world, and to show people like no one shows they the bad side of starting a new business or a new company. Everyone shows that oh well, I was a uh, I made my first six figure salary when I was like twenty three years old at my company, and I'm like. Yeah, it's, it's like humble bragging, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, if you think about it, you know, the whole idea is, you know, you know, it's not it's not enough even to, you know, love your work, you have to tell everyone about it. But also it's about fusing identities between employers and their employees and getting more out of them. Um, now, I know a lot of employers might not like me for saying that, but that's that's the fact of the matter. But also, I think that, you know, people who are, you know, managers or whatever, they're also part of this. They're also caught up in it. And I think that it is important, you know, to remember that this whole promotion of, you know, performance workaholism is, is, is not benefiting any of us. All it does is it sets people up against each other. Um, you know, even the idea of, you know, the freemium models in business. I mean, if you think about it, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think that we've all begun to realize that as our data gets gobbled up by, you know, platforms who are selling it on, mm. you know, people don't realize the, you know, the value of, the information that they're actually putting out to the public and and also the amount of personal information that they're distributing online and that's something that people need to be aware of too yeah and even like um 
like one thing that I think is going to be safer for my generation, like looking at our, like I would have grown up um, around when kind of MySpace took off and then you had Bebo and then you had Facebook took off and then that moved to Instagram and Twitter and all those other platforms. So if, if you were to map your kind of online footprint from when I was younger, like the things you just so willingly kind of put out there, um and even like when now when you go onto a website and they're like we'll give you 30 percent off if you sign up to our service and get bombarded by our for, by our emails for life like so many people just willingly give over their information um but yeah that's that's so interesting because it like and it you i think you really need to have that self-analysis and see like who is it benefiting like you staying way late over the time you're supposed to stay in work or compromising on spending time with family and friends or taking vacations is it benefiting you personally or is it you just giving in to say not even a big corporation but to whoever you're working for yeah and, and a lot of it's social pressure it's, it's about you know how others around you perceive you no one wants to be seen as the lazy person you know and not not you know and you always you know this whole idea of you know being the last person to leave leave work but as i often say to people you know in, in you know sometimes you know when i'm doing a workshop on this i often say you know actually it's the person who leaves work first who's the most efficient so you should be striving to be that person <laughs> so um you have to try and try and turn it around sometimes for people because it's very hard to change those I suppose those belief systems which are embedded in our cultures, which is, you know, work harder and all of that. And I know years ago I used to go to, you know, travel quite a bit to Asia and, you know, you'd see people much more laid back. And I used to think, well, maybe that's why their economy isn't, you know, isn't doing so well. But actually, you know, I've, I've come around to thinking, you know, this whole idea of, you know, um, collectivism and you know we are we are connected to each other and we're connected to the environment and you know you only get one chance at this life and you know there's no coming back to kind of you know live it the way you wanted to live it and I think unfortunately you know a lot of people particularly in western economies we have this view that if we work hard now we'll we'll reap the rewards after retirement but by the time a lot of us reach our retirement, we're too sick to be able to reap any of the rewards and we end up spending it all on kind of, you know, get, you know taking care of our health. And um, so I think it's important to remember to live now. And that doesn't mean being reckless or, or not being, you know, sensible about, you know, retirement or investments. It's about remembering that, you know, there is no tomorrow for any of us. And I think that if COVID has taught us anything, it should be that that, you know, grab opportunities when you have them and live for live today, every day as best you can. Yeah, no, definitely. And like, it's such a, like, that's one thing that I've started to think of more and more, um, especially during COVID times is, am I going to, like, are you going to keep on working and have the mentality of, but oh, if I pay into this and I build a pension and then I do all this, well, then I can do it when I retire. And I also have quite a lot of um, lifestyle kind of diseases. Um, well, they're, they're half lifestyle, half kind of genetic that I've run in my family. And I'm just really conscious of things like heart disease, diabetes, all of those, which are so, they're kind of like common currency now. Like I'd say if you walk into kind of any room, there's probably one person in the room with some kind of lifestyle disease. Yes. And I mean, if you go out to a lot of the tribes um, you'll find like the indigenous tribes, I mean, even those are that, that are most remote and um, are least affected by, I suppose, mo modern um, 
modern living and modern lifestyles and, and Western diets, you'll find that they, they have very little of those lifestyle diseases. And I think what you say is very important there. You made a point about genetics and environment. And that's another thing. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that if they have a genetic predisposition that, you know, okay, it might, it might increase the risk. But genetic dispositions actually play a very small role in how you end up. Mm. And this is something which, um, you know, research has begun to really look at very, very deeply. You know, previously it was thought that, OK, you know, it was down to your genes and you basically had good genes or bad genes. And, and that kind of determined a lot. But actually, the influence it has is very little environment plays a much greater role up to about 75 percent so what you actually do even if you're born with the worst genes in the world if you manage your environment and you you know you engage in health promoting activities and that's not just the food you eat and the air that you breathe it's about the relationships that you have positive relationships oh. it's about all of that stuff together that you can actually counter a lot of those those genes may never switch on yeah. Um, yeah. But equally, you could have very good genes. But if you if you engage in really, you know, negative behaviors, your chances are still going to be very high of getting one of those lifestyle diseases. Yeah. And it's a thing like as I've gotten older that I'm very cognizant of. Um, but yeah, it's so interesting because speaking of when you were saying when you went to one of the tribes um, and like lifestyle diseases are very um, low in numbers, but it just reminds me of when I was in like my first year of college, I went over to Nicaragua to um, volunteers. I was working on a project with um local people from the people from the local village um and we were all so angsty like we were building schools and doing all that kind of stuff and running like after school programs and all of like the irish people that were there were all like okay everything needs to run to plan we need to do this we need to do this and all the nicaraguan people from the village were like it's nika time like just you know chill like it'll get done and we were all like no 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 if we don't stick to the schedule like if we don't have this like why are we taking two hours for lunch like we were all kind of like you could see the big culture difference um and like i'd say not one person in that village that i ever came across had any kind of lifestyle disease whatsoever yeah uh, and, and in fact the, the kung um they're an indigenous tribe they actually don't have a word even for time so for them there's no sense of kind of you know you know, being on time or time anywhere. So it's kind of interesting how we, you know, we're so clocked, you know, we're so driven by the clock. And I found the same thing. I was in Costa Rica last year and um, like that again, you know, I was kind of, you know, apologizing because I was like, you know, three minutes late for a kind of a meeting. And it was like, no, 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 no. It's like, chill you know five ten minutes no problem you know <laughs> so, uh, it's yeah. so funny though because it's especially in the working world it's such a characteristic that if like you are an on-time person or an early person that is a good characteristic for someone whereas if you were maybe always five minutes late or even running a bit late that is a bad characteristic for someone yeah. To have. yeah we really focus on these binaries between good and bad and you know um, uh, you know, even in terms of like, you know, how you live your life or what you eat and all of that. So I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Cause even if you think like, if I think of it, say like if I was interviewing a candidate, my mind, if they were late for the interview would automatically knock that person down in my head. Yeah. Um, whereas it's hilarious though, because 
it probably doesn't impact on their ability to do the work. Like it's probably, they can probably explain lateness and things happen, but it's such a time is so precious in our society or something that we need to have everything kind of mapped out. Um, and I think it's quite ironic that, you know, time is so important to us and yet we don't value our own time in terms of, you know, downtime. And, you know, we, we always prioritize, I suppose, you know, being productive or being seen to be productive and not, not being able to sit still. And I think that's something that, you know, probably a lot of us need to learn. And there's no doubt about it, you know, COVID, you know, because of the restrictions, it has forced people to be, I suppose, creative and inventive and you can even see that a lot of people are kind of getting back to kind of, you know, things like baking and doing stuff for themselves, as opposed to, you know, rushing around for the takeaway and having no time for actually people. Yeah, no, definitely. And I've kind of noticed like the, the benefits, like I don't think I would do because some tasks as in probably every profession are more suited to being in an office or work environment. Um, but like, I would definitely advocate for, like, I hopefully don't see us going back to 100% all work in the office. Like, I think we've learned a really good lesson that allowing people the flexibility to work from home is a good thing because like, it's cutting off probably, like I know for myself, an hour and a half of probably a commute and traffic where I can get up and I start the workday in a much more better mind frame, making me more productive to do the work that I need to do. Yes, yes. And I think that, you know, companies, you know, I think it's quite interesting that actually um, a lot of this move towards the um, work from home has been driven actually by people themselves as opposed to employers. Initially, I think we, we thought that the uptake would be from employers, but it's actually um, turned out to be the opposite. And um, I do think that um, probably we return to a kind of a mixed or blended approach, certainly um, in education. And um, in the workplace, I think that there will be there will be a shift towards um, working from working more from home. I'm not sure that working all the time at, uh, from home would be an ideal approach. And the reason being is um, because there's more to work than just doing the job. And I think that's also important to remember. It's that social interaction. It's the chat at the water cooler. It's the um, you know collaborative sharing of knowledge. I know a lot of this can be done online, but you know as we said early on in this um, today when we were discussing this, it's um, it, it's not the same. And um, so I do think that it's it's a very positive move towards more working from home. It does allow people more time to spend with their families and to manage their own time. And as long as they get the job done, who cares? And yes. There's no doubt about it. And um, there's certainly lots of stories of people, you know, working in their pajamas. But I don't think employ employers care as long as they do the job. Um, yeah. I, th I think where it could be problematic is where people are so isolated and there's no interaction that maybe um, creativity could suffer and innovation to some degree. Um, time will tell. Um, but also, you know, if people have habits like they're drinking from home and then they're trying to work, that could become problematic. Yeah. And like, I'm definitely, cause I'm now about one day back physically in the office. Um, and those days like are great for the social interaction or even kind of just cause I'll see people out and about and stuff, but I'm definitely a big advocate for a blended, um, kind of a blended model moving forward because 
there are certain tasks which for me are just suited from working from home and the, but the, then I do really appreciate that kind of social interaction with my colleagues as well but it's so interesting to think because a work from home was just never a thing in Ireland until COVID happened like it was just maybe some professions did but it never had entered the kind of scheme or like talk within my organization about us ever remote working like it was always like everyone's always in the office yeah and I, th I think that you know certainly it'll save companies in the long run but it'll also save a lot of people you know and again in terms of their health they don't have to commute which is stressful in itself mm. you know I, I certainly have welcomed you know not having to do the commute as well and I think most people you know when you add those hours up you know you're talking about three four hours a day and that's that's really that's substantial you know, and to be able to use that time more effectively um, as well. So I think that, that work-life balance is something that, you know, is certainly something that people can move towards. It's possible now, whereas before it wasn't. And I think that going forward, it'll be really important for us to look at that and see how we're going to manage that. Perfect. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that kind of brings us to maybe a nice closer question um, just on kind of work stress and burnout. Um, Obviously, a thing that people are probably still struggling with at the moment is striking that work-life balance, particularly even more now that people are probably working on their kitchen table and eating on their kitchen table and socializing with people around them at the kitchen table. So like they don't have the kind of say physical boundaries that they would have had before. So what do you have any kind of tips for anyone um, heading into 2021 how to kind of better strike that balance between um work life balance yes um i i think that very very importantly for people who are working from home is to have a physical boundary now i it doesn't matter if it's a cupboard <laughs> but you need to have a place for work and you need to be very disciplined about you know even if it's a corner in in a spare bedroom or if it's a corner in um you know a spare room but to have somewhere where you can separate from your everyday living very important and um, to avoid as much as possible working in the kitchen the dining room the living room and particularly the bedroom because it's going to be very difficult to sleep we have we associate different areas and spaces in our house with different activities and if you start to blend those and mix them up well then your work begins to blend into your life even if you're not working while you're there there's also the temptation to pick up the laptop when you're just not busy and you know i was speaking to a colleague of mine actually only during the week and this is a person who's always been very very disciplined about their work-life balance you know come Friday it was like you know laptop closed end of the work week and that's it you just wouldn't hear from them till Monday morning and very very good at doing that um, and even they were telling me that they found it very difficult in the last couple of months where they find themselves sitting at the television and they just kind of pick up the laptop or the phone also there has been kind of a you know it's important to be to you know impress upon employers and it's up to people to do this as well that it's not okay to be ringing people after six on you know on a friday evening and expecting them to pick up the phone but i think we can do a lot um ourselves by by communicating to others like if you pick up the phone and you answer every time a text that's sent to you well you're giving the message that you're available all the time so if you want to get less texts send less texts you know don't respond straight away so you can actually you can manage other people's behavior through your own behavior as well so that would be one thing the second thing i suppose would be um like that again make sure you get outdoors 
um, every day, even if it's raining, just put on a coat and get outside, get some fresh air, get some light, particularly early, early daylight is very important and you'll be able to work better. And it also regulates your body clock so you can sleep better in the evening. The other thing, I suppose, the third thing I would say is, um, yes, moving more. Now, um, a lot of people think that because they go to the gym or maybe because they go for a run in the, you know, once a day, that they're not sedentary, but you can actually be sedentary and still partake in physical exercise. What's really, what they've shown is in a lot of the studies is that um, movement, so that means just getting up out of the chair and moving around, sitting at a, 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 at a desk all day for long hours is a risk factor for diabetes, heart disease, all of these other lifestyle diseases. Whereas the more you move, the more you reduce that risk. So, you know, every 20 minutes or every half an hour, you know, concentration drops off at that point anyway. Get up, get a drink of water, even just walk around the kitchen or walk around the room or say hello to somebody or pick up the post, whatever it is. Um, and, and try to remember to take those breaks. And then try to, you know, make sure that when you have dinner or lunch or tea that you, you know, put away the work, put it out of sight or, you know, leave it in a different room. Yeah, definitely. Those are some really useful um, tips because even I remember from when I was studying, I much preferred studying in a coffee shop or the library or something because when you're a student, you're usually where you usually have a room somewhere. So where your room is, if you study there, then it's also your bedroom. So I never was able to separate the two and it used to cause me a lot more anxiety around exam time. So I think making sure you have that kind of physical boundary um even as you said if it is kind of moving a bookshelf um or moving just anything to kind of block off a particular space and just you you keep yourself contained in that kind of area for work um I'm a devil for like this weekend on Saturday I was like oh I was off on Friday which I, I, I took a day of leave. So like I was entitled to be off, but I was like, oh, I'll have so many emails and stuff to catch on on Monday. So maybe on Saturday, I'll just log in and check my email to make sure there's nothing too urgent. Like that, that, that was me. And I think working from home has definitely led to that because previously before working from home, I wouldn't have had access to my emails um, or any of my work stuff because we were all kind of local server based. Whereas now we've gone kind of cloud based and because I now have that access, it's so easy for me to be like, oh, I'll just, I'll just log in or I'll just check this or, um, yeah, no, definitely. There's a lot more personal responsibility involved, certainly from working from home. You know, people often, you know, we, we always thought that, you know, people would have the difficulty in disciplining themselves to work. What you're actually finding is the opposite, is that disciplining people to not work is the hard bit. Um, people, people will pick up, like you said, on a Saturday. But I think also what you said was quite important. You know, a lot of people suffer more stress, you know, around when they go on their holidays. The reason being is they're thinking about the amount of work they'll have to face when they come home. So, you know, being very disciplined and being able to, I suppose, uh, discipline yourself to, you know, just leave the work when you're leaving it and, you know, and not think about it. And that's hard. I mean, I'd be the first to put my hands up and say, I find that very difficult. I'm one of these people that I'm, I can be very dogged and I can keep at something and at it and at it, you know, relating to the night because I want to finish it and I don't like, like leaving things unfinished. So we're all subject to this. It's just how you manage it is going to make the difference between, you know, whether you feel good at the end of the week or you feel shattered. 
Yeah, definitely. Because I remember, because um, my manager was doing, say, either weekly or bi-weekly check-ins with each member of staff just to see how everyone was getting on and how they were kind of managing work-life balance and stuff. And I remember a common theme for me that I kept kind of bringing up was I had such paranoia that when I got emailed, if I wasn't responding speedily enough because people couldn't physically see me working, people would think that I wasn't working, if that makes sense sense because in an office environment you can see your colleagues because we're in an open plan office so I can my colleagues can see me so they can see me working away and doing whatever so that became a really big kind of thing for me and my manager just kept saying to me she was just like no like it's like if anyone ever needs you like super urgently they have your work number they will just call you um but it was getting that divide because you're it you're not able to kind of demonstrate and physically show to someone that you're working um so it's just kind of strike that balance um I found that quite hard yes Danielle and you wouldn't be alone in that um I know I've spoken to a number of people um you know with very kind of high power jobs you know very responsible jobs a lot of people depending upon them and they would say exactly the same you know when they started working from home they felt that they had to somehow you know prove you know they had to demonstrate that you know they're still there I think that a part of that initially and maybe not in your own case but certainly for some people and um, part of that anxiety was around you know the fear of maybe losing their job as you know companies might think about cutting back and stuff and and you know and if they weren't demonstrating that they were working that there wouldn't be evidence of that and and there's no doubt about it you know what we don't see we don't tend to think about but um but i think it's also a lot of it can be like that again it can be personal kind of paranoia it's that you know i want everyone to see that i'm working um and i think we kind of all have to get over that and realize that you know the job you know most people you know when it boils down to most people want to do a good job they want to do an honest day's work and they want to feel that they've earned what they what they what they worked for um so i think that sometimes we underestimate the nobility in people as well yeah i know definitely but yeah um i think we we might just wrap it up there but um before we um end um if you want to maybe give i i don't know if you have any kind of um website 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 or social media handles or where any of that good stuff of where people can maybe follow along um your work <laughs> Yes, what I would say is that if you want to contact me, you can contact me at my email. Um, that's Synergy, S-Y-N-E or C-H-I 360 um, at gmail.com. Um, I don't really engage much in social media for all of the reasons that we talked about. Um, I didn't much do- better off. <laughs> yeah, I didn't- and, and in fact, if you talk to a lot of people in my area of research, we all have very limited um, online profiles, believe it or not, um, which might seem strange. But, um, but certainly if somebody wants to get in contact with me, they can contact me through that avenue. And, um, and if you, know, you want to have a chat again when the research is completed, I'd be very happy to talk to you about it. Oh, definitely. Like, I'm so excited because it's just been such a like... Um all those kind of topics, such passion projects of mine, because I'm like, I'm just really interested to see how it affects me personally. So I've kind of been reading art, bundles of articles about like sleep and optimum sleep environments and the mind gut connection and all of that. But thank you so much um, for coming on and chatting with us. Um, both episodes have been super, like there's so many good tips in there and they'll be so useful for people, especially as we head into 2021, um, because I, I envision it's going to get harder before it gets better again for us. 
Yes, yes, I would say so too. And thank you very much, Danielle, for having me on your show. Um, it's been great talking to you as well. Thank you for tuning in to another Legal Diaries podcast. Be sure to follow along on all the social media channels at legaldiaries.ie on Instagram, www.legaldiaries.ie and on Twitter, it's legal at legaldiaries underscore ie. Thank you.